You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Y'all go ahead and grab a seat, man. Good to be in worship with y'all today. I remember a few years back, uh, Lauren and I took, um, we were with several college students and went to go uh, shoot sporting clays, which is like skeet shooting. We're actually doing five stand, um, which is a form of just shooting clays. And we're out there, and they had several employees from Lubbock Shooting Complex who were out there to help uh, give direction. Anybody like shooting clays? Anybody? Got a few? Okay, good. Yes, all right. Um, so they got the employees out there to kind of help give direction. Um, and my wife, Lauren, was there with us, like I said. And she, every time it was her turn, uh, in typical Lauren fashion, every time she shot, her shotgun, she screamed <laughs> because she's just not much of a gun person. Like she, uh, not against guns, but didn't grow up with them and so gets kind of uncomfortable around them. And so I remember Jesse, one of the ladies who was working there, an employee there, uh, was kind of coming along helping and she uh, realized Lauren was screaming every time she shot and so she went to help her and Jesse was talking to Lauren and she was like, Lauren, I wanna help you out here. Like are you, tell me what's going on. What are you seeing? Like are you, are you looking down the barrel? Because you shouldn't be looking down the barrel. You should be tracking with the bird because we're not, we're not target shooting. We're, we're shooting clay birds. So you want to track with the bird. And Lauren just smiled and looked at her and said, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I, I'm closing my eyes every time I shoot. <laughs> and, and so Miss Jessie was like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's not going to be okay. Kind of concerned for the safety now. So Miss Jessie spent the next, I don't know, probably 10 minutes or so Walk in with Lauren through some, like, okay, here's how this works. Like, let's get you comfortable with the gun. And it was cool. The, the goal became not for Lauren to hit a clay bird, but just like if she didn't scream and she kept her eyes open, that was a win, right? And so she did really good. But what was funny, it, what was cool was Jesse took the time to try to make her comfortable because she realized if Lauren was unfamiliar and uncomfortable, she was, one, going to close her eyes, and two, scream every time she shot. My job as one of the pastors here is to help familiarize you with scripture, all the different parts of scripture, so that as you read the different parts, you don't wanna like close your eyes or, or scream when you get to it, but you can dig in and say, hey, I may be, this may be newer to me, I may not be completely comfortable, but I'm kinda familiar with it so I can dig in. Does that make sense? And so what we're gonna do today, because we're starting uh, the book of Isaiah, or in the book of Isaiah, we're starting the prophets, I'm gonna take a little bit of time to kinda introduce you to the prophets and some things you need to be aware of so that as you read the prophets, you're not like scared and screaming and closing your eyes. So that said, uh, let's put the first point on the screen as an introduction to the prophets. And that is, uh, prophets looked back more than they looked forward. Probably something maybe you didn't expect to hear about when you think about the prophets, but prophets looked back more than they looked forward. So here's the reality. The prophets, they're, their message was not original with them, meaning they were what you might could call covenant enforcers. So they were looking back to the first five books, five books of, excuse me, that was a close one, the five, first five books of the Bible and basing their message off of those five books. So in the Pentateuch, the first five books, God laid out to the nation of Israel, not to us, to the nation of Israel, if you do these things, here are the blessings that will come your way. If you don't do these things. Here are the curses that will come your way. So the prophets were reminding God's people of what God had already said and what God had already said would happen if they obeyed or disobeyed. Does that make sense? So we have to kind of get rid of this mind of prophecy all being about out here in front. No, it's 
here's what's happened. Here's what God said would happen if you do this, and God's promises are true, so we can know that the future will come true based on what God has already said. Kind of interesting, um, you can read this, and we have a book back there called How to Read the, How to Read the Bible Book by Book by um, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Incredible book, um, highly recommend it. But here's one thing, they, one thing they point out. It's this, that when you consider, or when you think of the prophets always about future things happening, if you're trying to read the prophets for like, you're trying to decipher the future, do y'all have, it's kind of generated. I feel like sometimes like my grandparents would like have this map of the timeline of all the end times and future stuff. It's kind of, an, it can be an obsession for, for the older generation. I'm not sure why that is. Some of y'all are looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but why that's dangerous is because of what I'm about to tell you. That is, less than 2% of Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. So what we live in now. And less than 1% concerns events yet to come in our time. So do, do the prophets talk about future things? Yes. Do they primarily talk about future things? No. Tracking? So if you read it through this lens of it's all about the future, you're gonna be super confused and miss out on what God's trying to communicate to you. All right, that said, move to the second thing. Number two, under introduction to the prophets, prophets often pointed to a coming judgment, Messiah, and restoration. So I'm trying to give you a balance here. Yes, it's primarily about what's already happened, but they did and they do point to future things. So they pointed to the coming Messiah, to judgment, and to restoration. So really when you read the prophets, I guess what I'm saying is you kind of have to have two lenses through which you read. So you've got this, okay, a lot of it's already been fulfilled, but also there is a coming judgment. There is coming restoration and the Messiah has already come. So you kind of have to have both lenses. Third thing, very simple. Prophets use several genres to communicate. Prophets use several genres to communicate. So think of it this way. Uh, prophets like all kinds of music, right? So if Isaiah was alive today, he might listen to some rap, to some country, to some rock, to some classical, whatever. That's how the prophets wrote. They used all different types. So when you read Isaiah, if you just try to read it simply as a story, you're gonna be super confused. If you try to read it just as poetry, you're gonna be confused. All these different genres are woven in there. Apocalyptic, you get into all the kind of crazy visions and things like that. It's all through the prophets. So you need to be able to or be ready to navigate those different genres. Another great resource that I don't think we have back there, but a great resource is the ESV Literary Study Bible. I'm pretty sure you can get it on Amazon, but the Literary Study Bible, it's the best I know at a simple resource at helping you navigate when you shift from poetry to narrative to apocalyptic and what in the world is going on. Really, really helpful. All right, last thing under the prophets, uh, introduction to them, that's this. Prophets spoke to specific people at specific times. I think we're typically aware of that when we talk about the New Testament epistles and we're like, now listen, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians at Ephesus, so don't take out of context, but for some reason we tend to forget that with the Old Testament, that the author, in this case Isaiah, talking about today, he had an intended audience in mind. And so when you take, when you try to pluck the truth, the idea out of that context, you're going to be confused. I always say it's like if you walk into a movie in the middle of it and you stay for three minutes, are the movies even open right now? 
Okay, good. I was like, is that even relevant? Anyway, so, or like, let's say you walk into your, your friend's apartment and they have Netflix on and you see two minutes of it and you walk out and you're like, that's the dumbest movie I've ever seen. Your friend would be right to go, you have no idea what you just saw, right? You have no context. The same with the prophets. If you, if you forget that Isaiah, whoever you're reading, was writing to a specific people at a specific time, you're going to be confused. Context matters. I know I'm moving quick, but it's because I wanna get to the meaty stuff. Um, a real quick introduction to the book of Isaiah. And like Jack said, there's that one sheet available to you. If you haven't already grabbed it, you can grab it at the Welcome Center or at one of the doors on your way out. But uh, a couple things I wanna add to that or just make sure you're aware of in an introduction to Isaiah. The first thing, I'm gonna describe this as Isaiah had kind of a two-fold message, and here's the first thing. Isaiah spoke to God's people about judgment because of their sin. He spoke to God's people about judgment because of their sin. So what I don't want you to miss, who was he speaking to primarily? It's on the screen, you can say it. God's people, yeah, let's get loud. Right, let's try it one more time. Who was he speaking to? Okay, now we're awake, that's good, all right. Speaking to God's people, and what was coming because of their sin? Judgment. There are consequences for your sin. We live in this kind of weird idea of Christianity in America today where it's like, oh, I'm God's child. He thinks what I do is cute. And it's like, no, there's still consequences for your sin. This idea, if you think I can just live however I want and God doesn't care because I'm a child of God, I'm not sure you're a child of God because that's not how grace works. So there are consequences for your sin. So that's part one of his message. And then kind of the second main emphasis is this. Isaiah spoke to God's people about hope that was rooted in God's promises. He spoke to God's people about hope that was rooted in God's promises. So this twofold idea of there are consequences for your sin, but God's showing them there's still hope, not because you're awesome or because I really like you. There's hope because of God's grace. <laughs> there's, there's hope because of God's mercy despite your sin. Does that make sense? So kind of twofold message you're gonna see unfold in the book of Isaiah. The third thing uh, I wanna tell you about Isaiah to keep in mind, that is he clearly portrayed God as the hero of the story. He clearly portrayed God as the hero of the story. It's interesting, Isaiah's name means Yahweh, God, the Lord, is salvation. That's what Isaiah's name means. Yahweh is salvation. How you spell Yahweh uh, in English, transliteration is Y-A-H-W-E-H. So why is that important? If you're reading through Isaiah and all your takeaways are like, all right, so I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna be a stronger Christian. You're missing the point because who's the hero? The Lord, right? He's the hero. So don't miss that. Don't get it backwards. You're not the hero. You needed a hero. That's why he came, right? He is the hero. Fourth thing I want you to see about Isaiah before we get into our text and that is this, kind of cool. Isaiah can be seen as a miniature Bible. So Isaiah is like a little mini-me of the Bible. Um, some have even said that Isaiah is kind of like the Old Testament version of the book of Romans in that it clearly lays out the need for a savior, that humanity's need for a savior, and that Jesus came to save us. Um, kind of cool to think when you think about it being a miniature Bible and how it points us to Jesus. Um, by the way, 66 chapters in Isaiah, how many books in the Bible? 66, okay, we could talk more about why it's a miniature Bible, but I'm gonna stop for time. But here's what's cool. I've said this before, but Isaiah was written 
700 years before Christ and 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. Now, you'll see why that's important in a second. But here, that's what's beautiful about the word of God that as early as it was before Christ, as, as much time there was before or between when it was written and when Christ came, it clearly points us to Jesus. And the last thing I'll say as far as about like the focus on Jesus in the book of Isaiah, um, when you look at the New Testament as a whole and Jesus, what Jesus quoted, the New Testament as a whole and what Jesus quoted the most, the number one book is the book of Psalms. That's why when you read the Psalms, if you don't see Jesus in the Psalms, you may not be reading them right because Jesus is all through the Psalms. But the second most quoted book is guess what? Good guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be like, no, Jeremiah. <laughs> the second most quoted book is Isaiah. Some call him the evangelical prophet because he points so much to Jesus. So if you're ever wondering, like, is Jesus talked about in the Old Testament? Isaiah may be the best place you could go to see that. Now, kind of want to transition to our, to our, our sermon today. That was kind of introductory um, to just the book and prophets one thing that you're gonna see in the book of Isaiah, really it starts kind of at the early 40s and moves on, is this focus on the servant, that God would send a servant to rescue his people. And he makes clear, in, again, in the 40s, the chapters 40 through 50, that he, that God is that servant, that he would be the one that would come and save and rescue his people. And not just the people of Israel, but all the peoples of the world that will believe in him. Because if you remember Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham he was blessed to be a what? He said, Abraham, you just blessed because you just blessed. No. Is that what he said? No. He said, you're blessed to be a, a blessing. Yeah. That through Abraham, the nations of the world, the people of the world would be blessed. Y'all with me? Man, if you're not with me, you should go back and listen to Cole's uh, series on missions from like, not very long ago, <laughs> um, super good, the call to be outward-minded. So that said, this servant would come and offer salvation to not just the people of Israel, but to the Gentiles, to the world at large. So that in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. I'll shoot straight with you. I don't really have um, like any real cute or funny stories for you today. You're like, you never have cute or funny stories. <laughs> um, this message is just the gospel. Simple, but incredibly fundamental, foundational to what we believe as Christians. If we don't understand this, we're gonna have a hard time understanding anything. I would say if you're shaky on your understanding of what we're about to cover, you're gonna be shaky in your whole Christian life. So I'm gonna invite you as a believer to lean in and to remember what matters most as a follower of Christ. And if you don't know Christ, to lean in that, man, if I ever gave a message just that what is the heart of Christianity, this is it. This is what it is. That said, we're gonna start in Isaiah 50, verse four, and this is, this servant speaking. So I'm gonna read through this text and I'll give you our first point. We're gonna have three points today from three different passages. Isaiah 50, verse four, the servant speaking. 
The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. So he's saying, God has, God the Father is teaching me, and he's taught me not just to hear him, but to be able to take what he's given me and teach to those who are weary. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So he says, God's taught me that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So he's saying, God spoken to me. I heard him and I actually did it. I actually did what he told me to do. This is automatically right off the bat where this servant, which again we know is Jesus because no one else in scripture could fulfill all the uh, qualifications of this servant than Jesus. This is where the servant and we as humanity at large we split ways. Because we hear God, and how often do we rebel against him? Too often. Kyle Zant, he's the president at Beatonville Homes, he told me one time, he said, Brandon, I'm more and more convinced that people don't have a problem in hearing God, they have an obedience problem. And I was like, curse you, you're right, <laughs> right? So true. But I have a hearing problem as believers. We too often have, a, have an obedience problem, but not the servant. He said, I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, even when he was called to suffer. Look at verse six. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You begin to see, you begin to see the reference to Jesus? He's saying, I was willing to obey God the Father even when they would rip out my beard and beat my back to a pulp. I still stayed the course. That's why he says in verse seven, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. So he's saying, I've set my face like a rock. This is the servant saying, I'm determined. You can try to sway me. You can try to change my mind. But I've made up my mind. I, it is set like flint. And I, shall, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Man, those are kind of fighting words, right? Like, this is Jesus saying like, hey, you, want, you have a problem? You wanna bring a case against me? Stand up. Now I should keep, like, just keep it in context. This is, the language here is that of a courtroom. So it's not like Jesus is about to go to fist a cuss with somebody. Let's go, bro. Like, but the idea is they're in a courtroom. But it is this, Jesus is saying, you wanna hurl accusations at me? You wanna speak evil of me? Go ahead, stand up. Let's go. Bring it on. Jesus is not a wimp. Verse nine, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And the resounding answer, it's, he's saying, no. No one can declare me, declare me guilty. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Before I give you our, our point, let me say this. You, you see the picture here, right? Jesus stood trial. They brought accusations against him. But were any of those accusations true, that he was a sinner? This is an easy question. Were any of those accusations true, that he was a sinner? No. Proof, three days later after they killed him, he rose up out of the grave, right? Proving that death had no hold on him, that sin could not hold him down because he was the perfect one. He was the perfect man. 
Here's our point, I'm gonna unpack it. First thing I want you to see, Jesus fought with his perfection. Jesus fought with his perfection. This is foundational, fundamental to the gospel because of this. None of us are perfect. What? <laughs> I was love people started saying it. It's like, hey, look, man, now look, I'm not perfect. And it's like, what? <laughs> no, none of us are perfect. None of us perfectly obey God. So Jesus fought for you by being perfect for you. Like, how, how does that work? You and I, this, this, ser- this sermon is called The Serpent and the Servant, or The Servant and the Serpent. I can't remember one of those. <laughs> the servant and the serpent. You and I have an accuser, don't we? His name is Satan, he is the serpent. He likes to accuse us. That same accuser stood against Jesus. But the serpent's accusations could not stick or stand against Jesus because he is perfect. And what scripture shows us is that Jesus was perfect on your behalf. You can't be perfect. He was perfect in your place. So Satan, the serpent, accuses us. And, he, and he's totally right. We are woefully and dreadfully sinful. That's us. But Satan is a liar because he only tells half the truth. See, to God's people, to the children of God, yes, we are woefully sinful, but the rest of the truth, which is the truth, is that Jesus was perfect in our place. So when the serpent throws his accusations at you, you can remember they don't have to stick, they, sh- they don't stick because the servant was perfect for you. Y'all tracking with that? That's good news. <laughs> he was perfect in your place. I wanna read, um, actually before, I wanna read from verse nine again. Here's what's cool. Because Jesus died in your place, was perfect for you, now the words of verse nine are true of you. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? See, if you're a child of God, by faith, you've placed your your trust in Christ. Now what is true of Jesus is true of you, that God is your helper and that no one can declare you guilty because Jesus was perfect for you. I wanna read for a moment from uh, a book by Tim Keller called the freedom of forgetfulness, and he's kind of writing with the mindset of this, we have this me focus, I'm gonna earn it, I'm gonna prove to God how spiritual I am, mindset of Christianity, and here's what he says. Every single day, we're on trial. So he's saying when you live with this mindset of like, I I gotta be good, I gotta show God how amazing I am, I gotta be perfect, that's like living on trial. That's what it feels like. He goes on. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and the defense, and everything we do is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. Some days we feel like we are winning the trial and other days we feel like we're losing it. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? So he's saying because Jesus is perfect for you, God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus rather than your sin says the atheists might say they get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope that they eventually will get a verdict that confirms they're a good person. Performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhists too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you're in the courtroom, every day you're on trial. That 
is the problem. But in Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. It is not the performance that leads to the verdict. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or take Romans 8, 1, which says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. In other words, God can say to us just as he once said to Christ, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see, the verdict is in. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things for the joy of doing them. Jesus fought for you in the courtroom with his perfection, and he won. The accusations of the serpent don't stick to you if you've placed your faith in the servant, Jesus Christ. A fair question, if you're like, okay, how, how, okay, I get Jesus perfect for me. If I place my faith in him, then God looks at me, not just as a forgiven person, but like he sees the righteousness of God. Like he sees, he sees Jesus. You may be wondering, how does that get applied to me? How do I receive that? Great question. It's kind of the next part of understanding the gospel. Turn to chapter 53 of Isaiah, 53. Really this part I'm about to read really starts in 52, 13, but because I wanna look at one other passage, we're gonna jump in in verse four. Chapter 53, verse four. Again, talking about the servant. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, the servant, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Again, this was written 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's the second, I want you to th second thing I want you to see. Jesus saves with his sacrifice. That's our second point today. Jesus saves with his sacrifice. So how is it possible that 
God could look at me and see the perfection of Jesus? How could that, the perfection of Jesus be placed on me? It's because Jesus took your place on the cross. You and I deserve death, hell, damnation, separation from God, but Jesus experienced all that on the cross for us. It's what theologians call the great exchange. That on the cross, Jesus took on all of our guilt and shame and sin and wickedness and evilness. Think about that. This is how we know Jesus was not a wimp. First, you have the excruciating pain of the physical aspect of crucifixion, but then he also took on all the sin of the world, every single bit of sin. You and I feel like in a funk and we're down when we do one sin. Jesus bore it all on the cross. He was not a mamby-pamby man. He took on all the weight of the sin of the world that you and I deserved. And the great exchange in place because he took on that, God puts on us the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. You don't get that. You don't get to be viewed through the eyes of God as a perfect, obedient, loved child of God if it had not been for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. See, this is not about you can earn it, you can be good enough. No, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. How was it made possible? By the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's all over the text that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was the one beaten on the cross for our iniquities, our sin. Upon him was the beating, the chastisement that brought us peace. We get peace with God because he experienced the beating we deserved. We're all like sheep. We, we, we run away. We do our own thing. So Jesus became a sheep to die in our place. See, this is what second Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said that he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous, righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. Man, God takes sin serious. He came all the way to die for it. Yeah, <laughs> If we could be good enough to earn salvation and just kind of, I'm in the right, I'm in the right mind, I'm doing good, then why did Jesus come? It's not like God looked down and he's like, man, I just love them so much. They're so good. I'll just die for them too. No, he saw we were in a hopeless, wretched, terrible state and said, because of my grace and love, I'll come and die for them. That's the gospel. Not that you earned it and now he came down. You weren't worthy of anything. We're worthy of hell and separation from God. But the gospel is that God in his grace came to rescue us to rescue you. Some of us this morning, you're a Christian and you're kind of numb, meaning you're not, you don't get excited about what we're talking about. I'm not looking, it's not about amens, that's what I'm saying at all. Like, you're not getting fired up thinking about this, or you're not moved because you've forgotten what I'm about to show you in the next passage. Others of you, you're not a Christian, you've never trusted Jesus, you've kind of been relying on your goodness and you're a pretty good person because you don't realize the passage that I'm about to show you. So the first two passages we've seen, those have already happened. Those took place at the cross, right? So Jesus' perfect life, just 33 years on earth, and then Isaiah, 50, that was Isaiah, 50, then Isaiah 53, the cross, that's already taken place. What we're about to see is still to come. Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. May this awaken 
believers to join the gospel and may it shake those who don't know you, Lord, into salvation. Isaiah writing, chapter 63, seeing this is the future, he says, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So Isaiah sees someone coming and they're covered in blood. Their robes are completely red. And this one he sees, it's the servant. He says at the end of verse one, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So Isaiah, as he sees this one coming covered in blood, he's kind of nervous, like understandably, right? Like if you wanna come in on Sunday with all your clothes drenched in blood, please don't, like that's weird, right? So Isaiah sees him and he's like, oh, and Isaiah says, hey, or Jesus, the servant says, hey, it's me speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Verse two, Isaiah says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? So, stomp on grapes, go to the wine press, what happens? You get the juice on you, right? That's, what, that's the picture there. Like, what, why does it look like you've been stomping all over grapes? The servant, Jesus, responds in verse three. I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Question, I know this is a little like harsh and oof, but Jesus, when he came the first time, he was willing to be covered in his blood for the sake of you and I. In this second coming, whose blood is he covered in? Not his own. peoples of the world. Verse four, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Put this point on the screen. Jesus will judge with his strength. See, Jesus came as a lamb to be slaughtered for us, but when he comes again, he's coming as a lion, and that lion is gonna bring judgment. It's gonna bring punishment for sins that has not already been covered on the cross, meaning the gift has not been taken advantage of. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the gift is there. Anyone, no matter how evil, no matter how messed up they are, it's a free gift if they'll turn to Jesus. But if they reject that gift, the alternative is death. We like to emphasize, man, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, like, man, the free gift. Don't forget the first part. If you don't take the free gift, the wages, what you get, what you deserve because of your sinfulness, what I deserve because of my sinfulness, is what? Death. And Jesus it's gonna bring that. To say it like really bluntly, and I don't find joy in saying this, but just to be clear, as one of my professors, Stephen A. Smith, said, not Stephen A. Smith, he's on ESPN, oh my gosh, sorry. Wow, totally ruined that moment, <laughs> okay, sorry. Stephen Smith, is one of my seminary professors, he's a pastor now, 
we were talking about this concept in scripture that's very prevalent in scripture that Jesus died for us, but he will bring judgment. He said, you could say it this way. If you're not covered in the blood of Jesus, he'll be covered in yours. He will bring judgment. Like, man, is that really in scripture? And more, like, is that just Isaiah? Turn, if you dare, <laughs> to Revelation chapter 19. We often go to this passage to, when we get a tattoo, which, uh, no judgment there, but we miss maybe what it's about. <laughs> Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'm not gonna read it for the sake of time, but if you continue reading 17 through 21, it lays out what we see in Isaiah 63, that Jesus comes and he brings judgment to those who have not trusted in him. And more than that, he brings ultimate judgment to the serpent, to Satan, and throws him in hell forever. See, the servant stomped on the head of the serpent at the cross. But there's coming a day where Jesus will utterly, completely obliterate, destroy Satan. He'll be in hell forever. The servant, let's say it this way, the serpent has no chance against the servant. And if you have not turned to Christ for salvation, the reality is that your righteousness, your, I'm a pretty good person, stands no chance before the servant either. But that's why Christ beckons, come to him today for salvation. I'm not trying to scare you into salvation, but to realize if you don't turn to Christ and trust his perfect work on your behalf, that you could do nothing, but he died in your place, and you don't rest in that grace, the alternative is judgment, and he will judge in his strength. That's the reality. That's the, the gospel. And without that, if you don't know what Jesus rescued you from, you're not gonna get excited about salvation. If you're just like, man, I'm a pretty good person, and Jesus died for me, you're never gonna get excited about him. <laughs> But when you realize Christianity is not about good people becoming better people or bad people becoming pretty good people, but instead it's about dead people being made alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that'll get you fired up. That's the gospel. Jesus in Isaiah 63, he's the bloodied victory over all evil. You don't have to be on the evil side if you'll turn to him for salvation. If you're a believer this morning, the call to respond is to celebrate and rest in the finished, perfect work of Christ. I was talking with a young man in the 930 service that stood up and gave his life to Christ in the middle of the service, it was awesome. And afterward he said, man, I hope I can just keep it up. And I was like, no, dude, that's the beautiful thing. Like, you don't have to keep up anything. Jesus already did it all for you. And you could see it like, oh, dude, wow. Yeah, that's the gospel. It's Jesus in my place every day. If you're a Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus this morning.
They're probably in a room this size. There are many of you this morning that are now technically three minutes into the afternoon that you've not trusted Christ because you're still kind of relying on your own goodness. Or maybe you would just say, yeah, I, I know I'm not good. I'm pretty messed up. Could Jesus really forgive me? I, I'm so broken. I'm so wicked. I know I'm my, I'm my gut. I'm messed up. Like, how could God ever forgive me? I've had so many roller coaches of emotions of trying to be good for God. Like, how could he ever forgive me? I'm gonna tell you, don't let focus on yourself prevent you from salvation this morning. Focus on Jesus. Listen to these words. This is from the band Seven Places, calling us to fix our eyes on Christ. It says, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the propitiation, the satisfaction, if you would, for our sins, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The blood of Jesus Christ flowed from seven places. The first place he bled from, the blood that poured from his head that day. The blood from the thorns in the skull cleanse you from thoughts. The blood that was on his face. He has covered the things you may not want to face up to because of what you've seen or heard. Know this, the blood flowed for you. Yeah, but, but you just don't know. I backed away from the Lord. I've turned my back on him. Well, they took a flagellum and they beat his back and blood flowed from his back. It was reduced to hamburger meat that day. His back was so brutally beaten. And if you've turned your back on him and walked away from him, know this, the blood, the blood that poured from his back cleanses you, sprinkles you. Yeah, but you just don't know what I've done with, with these hands. Those hands were pierced. Those hands were pinned to the tree. Spikes driven through those hands where he bled to cleanse you and cleanse me from the stuff that we've handled that we ought not to have handled, the stuff that we've done that we ought not to have done. Hey, understand, the blood flowed from his hands. Yeah, but it's the stuff that's inside of me. It's just things that I feel in my gut. I have bitterness towards them and I'm angry with her. Jesus wants you to know that blood flowed from his side when they thrust that spear into him, when he hung on the cross. I have feet that, Walked where I ought not to have walked. Blood flowed from his feet too. When the spike pinned him through the feet to the cross of Calvary. And now realize things that you can't face up to. Thoughts that you've had that are not right, not good, not true. Bitterness inside of you. Stuff you've touched that you ought not to touch. Places you've gone where you ought not to have walked. Look and realize the sevenfold flowing of the blood of Christ cleanses you in every area from all sin and you're free and you're forgiven by the blood. What can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wanna ask this morning, we, we literally like never do this. I don't think I've ever done this uh, in the venue. Would there be someone this morning that you sense God drawing you to himself and you'd realize, you know what, I've been trusting my own works and goodness and today it's time to trust in the finished work of Jesus and actually become a Christian. Would anybody be willing to stand up and say, I'm ready to trust Christ this morning? Anybody? No pranks, no gimmicks, just wanna celebrate with you. Anybody? Hey, it's okay. I wanna say this. We're gonna be right down here after the service if you're like, man, I don't know, I like, you asked us to stand up. I ain't standing up in front of people. Like, we'll be right down here after the service. We'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you, love to connect with you, with Ricky that got saved at the 930 service and celebrate God's work in your life. If you are a Christian, 
Man, I think we can resonate and celebrate with the words of this song. Y'all stand and sing with us. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 